Hello. I was recently asked to do a talk for You Lead Media at an L&D summit event in Madrid. And my talk was about the future of L&D, really what L&D departments needed to do to be really relevant in the future organisation. I recorded it, and here it is. I'm sorry the sound's not brilliant, it's a bit echoey, and to be honest, you don't quite capture the uh, electricity, is probably overstating it, but you don't quite capture the ambience in the room at the time. It certainly sounds a lot sort of flatter than it was. But interestingly, in a pre- uh, recent podcast with Sam Carrington about what we can learn from stand-up comedy, he said about the importance of recording yourself and how much you learn from doing that. And one thing that I've really learned from recording this is how flat my voice sounds. So in the future, as a consequence, you should see a vast improvement in the quality of these podcasts. Anyway, over to You Lead Media and the L&D Summit. I titled this Future Proofing the Organisation because I thought it sounded quite interesting. And then I realised I actually had to write something about Future Proofing the Organisation with L&D. But the reason I thought about this is a really important thing in government in particular and in all organisations is trying to predict the future. We have to ensure that we have the platform, the people, the processes, so that we can respond to events in the future, so that we can provide the government with what they need when they ask us to do things. So part of what we have to do is try to predict what that future will look like. In L&D, we have to think what knowledge and skills, what behaviours, etc., people will need in the future. So that's the basis of, a lot, of some of what we have to do when we're actually planning. So what I want to share with you today are six ideas I had, six ideas about what I think L&D departments, L&D teams, L&D people need to be doing in the future. The first one of those is start in the right place. Now that sounds obvious, I know, but then all the best advice sounds obvious. That was a joke, by the way, so please, you're going to have to keep up. I've only written three jokes in this speech, and that was one of them, so please, can you try a bit harder? I'll do it again. Yes, we have to start in the right place. I know that sounds obvious, but then all the best advice... I haven't said it yet, hold on. That wasn't the funny bit. The funny bit is, I say... I say it sounds obvious and then say all the best advice is obvious, which is a way of saying that I'm giving you the best advice. If I'm going to have to explain all of these, this is going to take a while. Yeah, that is the problem, British humour. Yeah, I'm worse than that. I'm, I'm actually from part of the UK called Yorkshire, and we're not known for our expressive uh, approach to life in general. But I'm not going to signpost all the jokes, by the way, so you're going to have to concentrate. So we, we have to start in the right place. And what I mean by the right place is with the customer and where the customer's future is, what the customer is trying to think about for the future. That does sound obvious, but when, when we started thinking about this in our, our organization, we didn't start there. We started in places like this, thinking about what's the best L&D we can do? What's, what is best practice L&D? You know, we, we were thinking about modern workplace learning. We were thinking about what we could put online. We were thinking about creating MOOCs and podcasts and apps. We were thinking about the 70-20-10 model and what we needed to do with that. And all of that was really good stuff. We did lots of really interesting innovation. We had lots of great ideas. The problem was it wasn't the right place to start. Where we should have started is with the customer. Where's the customer? And when I say that, I don't mean where's the customer with L&D. I mean, where's the customer in their business? I do not mean where the customer is in L&D because they're probably wrong. The customer is not always right. They're usually wrong. And when it comes to L&D, they're usually 
really don't know what they're talking about. So I don't mean that. I, what I mean is, where is their business? What are they trying to achieve? What are the behaviors that really make a difference in their business? That's the starting place, not what brilliant L&D can we do. Unfortunately, most businesses aren't in that place. A lot of businesses or parts of businesses, I don't know if this is true in your organizations, but we find that a lot of what they expect from learning and development is they expect us to sort of rock up with a menu of training courses that they can then pick from. Some people nodding. Do a lot of people get that? Yeah? Isn't that really annoying? Because as loads of people have said today, what we want to do is really understand what their need is and then co-create uh, some you know, bespoke solution that's really focused on their performance needs. And they're going, yeah, but can we just have some training courses, please, because we're too busy. Does that happen? Yeah. And that's why I think the next most important thing that we need to be able to do is to get really good at business partnering. And I don't think, in my experience, and maybe it's different in your experience, but in my experience, we're not that good at business partnering. Most people in L&D come from L&D backgrounds. They come from being facilitators or designers. And they love all of that. They love how people learn. They're really in, you know, in, uh, inspired by all of that stuff. That's not the same as business partnering. Because business partnering is about really challenging the, the business, really making them think through what their, their need is. Deep analysis, deep questions. Why do you want to do this? What benefit will it have? What happens now? You tell me that you need to get better communication in your team. Okay, well, what happens now? What makes you think that? What do you see? And they just sit there and they'll they waffle some stuff. But eventually, when you get them really talking through that, their eyes start to light up and they start to really see what is happening in their team. And quite often, the learning and development program isn't the solution. So do business partnering. That's the second thing. Get really good at business partnering. And that isn't just a learning and development person doing a bit of account management. It's having those really deep conversations, really spending time in that analysis phase. It is really good fun. This isn't my background, my background's L&D, but I tell you, it's quite challenging. I do find it quite challenging, but it's so satisfying. When you see their eyes light up and they really start thinking through the need that they want, what the performance issue is, and then you start thinking through, well, actually, where's the so solution here? But you don't, what we tend to do in L&D is we tend to jump to the solution a bit too quickly, and we don't really wallow in this phase. And once you get good at this, it's so much fun. It's, it's really, really satisfying. And one of the reasons I wanted to kind of talk about this is I get really, really hacked off that learning and development is kind of not in the center of the business. You know, if a business draws out its value chain, as we were talking earlier, if the business draws out its value chain, how it makes its money, how it succeeds, L&D is not a step in that value chain. We're kind of somewhere on the edge. Give the employees a few training days, keep them happy, give them a nice day out. Now, come on, get back to work. Is that kind of how it feels in a lot of organizations? That really annoys me. Because I think L&D is one of the most innovative, creative, exciting parts of a business, and yet we're stuck out on the edge, treated as this kind of peripheral, nice to have. So in order for us to get into the middle of the organization and say, hang on a minute, human behavior is what makes the difference between success and not success in the majority of organizations. The majority of organizations, it's really just people doing stuff. That's how you succeed or don't succeed, how creative your people are, how good they are at customer service or whatever it might be. All of that is supported by L&D because none of us can all do all of that naturally. So we should be right there in the middle of the organization. So we need good business partnering to try and force ourselves to make them think, look, we can do more than just this crappy course on communication skills or time management. Oh, God, I hate that one. <laughs> Someone else asked me for time management. God. 
We can do a lot more than that. We can really help transform people's motivation, confidence, behaviours in the workplace. You need, you need really good business partnering to do that. But there's more than that. And we talked a lot about this. Lee was talking about this. We talked about this uh, yesterday as well. There's lots of things that get in the way of learning. You can put all, you can pour in as much training and development as you like. Will that lead to performance improvement every time? No. No. It's been estimated that one percent of training actually makes a difference. One percent. Now, okay, I just made that up. It's not true, but it makes a point. It makes a point that. Training doesn't usually lead to performance improvement. There's loads of other things that get in the way. What sort of things get in the way? Pardon? Did you say crime? <laughs> Time. Sorry, yeah, that's, that's, that's a much better answer than crime. Yes, thank you. Time, yeah. Time. Yeah, you, you also mentioned in your speech about bullying and things like that. If there's a workplace where you don't feel safe. So all of these things. We talked about this yesterday, didn't we? The things that get in the way of learning. Poor management, bad structure, bad processes. There's millions of things that stop. However much brilliant training courses you, you check in there, it's not going to actually lead to much difference. So this leads me on to my third point. Learning and development is change management, and change management is learning and development. It's the same thing, basically. Change management is the plural of learning and development. Change is how do you just get lots of people to change. And the first thing they say in change management is it's about individuals. So it's what's the difference here? Basically, change management is, this is where we are now, this is where we want to be in the future, here's some stuff we have to do to get there. But it focuses more on really, really important things. It focuses on everything that stands in the way between beginning and end. It focuses on making the current status quo untenable, which we don't do in learning development. It focuses on how do we make the new thing, the new way we do things around here, the new culture. How do we implant that? How do we make that real? I'll give you an example. Line management. How many people work in an organization where management isn't really respected? Nobody. All right, so this is a really crappy example there. Okay, okay. This is anonymous. Don't worry. I work. You could, so, but a lot of us work in organizations where line management itself isn't really respected. It's kind of managers say, I'll, I'll do the minimum and then I'll get back to my day job. So how do you change that culture to get line management? Well, if you just do line management training, you'll hit your 1% thing. 1% of managers will be inspired and think, oh, that's brilliant, I'll do that. But a lot of them just won't because you're not making their current behaviours untenable, you're not going through that change management process, you're not addressing all the issues they're facing, and you're not forcing the new ideal line management situation, you're not putting that in the new processes. So, in other words, treat everything like change management. Get good at change management, treat L&D projects like change management. Change management projects, like any other project, they start with a business case. They start with saying, these are the outcomes we're going for. This is how much it's going to cost you. Do you want to buy it or not? That's the discipline we need to have. So we don't do that kind of discipline. We can't do any evaluation that's worth anything. And we can't get ourselves from the periphery of the organization into the center. I started talking about the future. I was saying this is really the future of L&D. So we need to look at the future. Does anybody remember a TV show called Tomorrow's World? Yes, I was looking at you, I thought you'd remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tomorrow's World was on in the UK. Did you have anything in your country similar? I don't know. But what they would do is they would predict the future by showing you what was the latest invention. And then they would say, this is going to transform the future. Do you know how often they were right? 
basically never. Yeah. Basically never right. Why were they never right? You can't predict the future? It's happening in the... Well, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I'm not that old, you know. <laughs> that was really quite hurtful. <laughs> I've just had a major milestone birthday, and you've just drawn a lot of attention to that. I didn't expect this. But the thing is, the one of the reasons they got it all wrong was they looked at the technology in complete isolation. That's all they just said, oh, here's a new thing, that'll change the world. And it just doesn't work like that. There's also the cultural side. I used to work for an airline, and this was in the 90s when the internet was just sort of really becoming a ubiquitous thing. And my boss, she was the head of IT development, and she said, I don't think there's any future for travel booking on the internet. Because <laughs> she saw it's too awkward, it's too faffy. People aren't going to bother registering and doing all that themselves. There's just no future for it. We laugh now, but come on, this was like 20-odd years ago. Yeah, well, we all thought that people wouldn't do that. And I, 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 at the time, I thought she was probably wrong, but I, I wasn't sure. I wasn't, didn't have any conviction in my opinion. And of course, we developed that, that anyway. But that was what people thought at the time. They didn't see the future of it, because they didn't see the culture change that would come with doing your own online bookings. The price competition, the ability to kind of buy a bag or not a bag or sit in the seat, all that kind of stuff that suddenly opens up to us, the freedom to book our own holidays. None of us saw that. I remember seeing the first iPhone, Steve Jobs standing up there with the iPhone. And I just thought, that, that won't catch on. It just looks like a gimmick to me, a fussy little gimmick. I guess I was wrong about that one. But we've all probably got stories like that where we didn't see how something would change. <coughs> Predicting the future is really hard because it's not just about the technology, it's also about the culture. Predicting the future of culture is pretty hard as well. You probably know the story about when Henry Kissinger asked the Chinese Premier during Lai, this is in 1971, he said, um, what do you think the impact of the 1789 French Revolution is? And during Lai said, it's too early to tell. <laughs> he, he had actually misunderstood the question, the question of during Lai. He thought he was talking about the 1969 French student demonstrations, but it was such a brilliant answer that people had just left it and not corrected it. But that's how difficult it is to predict the future of culture. In the 1789 French Revolution, in 1971, it's too early to tell. So culture is really hard to predict. But there we've got our two main drivers of why, how we're looking at the future. We've got technology and we've got culture. How you use things, how it affects the world. Those are our two main drivers. Any of you done an MBA, you probably know the PEST model or STEP model or steeple or PESTLE. So what we're really talking about here are the letters S and T. Those are our two main drivers culture and technology. And what we can do, let's look at culture first. What are the kind of extremes of culture that will help us understand one extreme to the other of culture? Well, the entertainment industry, we can look at the entertainment industry for this. So here are two extreme examples of culture. Does anybody recognize the one on the left? Star Trek? Yeah, Star Trek on the left and The Handmaid's Tale on the right. Does everyone know that one? So we've got kind of a, a very exaggerated sort of utopian idea of how humanity could be in the future. And on the right, we've got a kind of much more dystopian idea. Now, these are obviously far too dramatic examples for the normal workplace, for the near future, for learning and development. But interestingly, when I was looking at this, when I looked behind what was going on in these two societies, the traits were remarkably common. 
and are actually remarkably relevant to the workplace. Because in the Star Trek example, in that sort of utopian thing, it's all, it's all about being open, curious, creative. It's all about learning, humanity, collaborative. And people are essentially explorers. That's the role humans take on in this wonderful future. Almost every utopian society you can think of, it has something like those traits. Dystopian, similarly, almost all of them are closed societies where humans become servants to something. They have to accept things. They're not allowed to be curious. Conformity, obedience, autocratic. We might put hierarchical in an organizational sense. But you can see those traits are actually quite relevant to the workplace. So this gives us, when we're thinking about culture, this gives us kind of an exaggerated good and bad side, okay? So let's look at technology, and then we'll put the two things together. So technology, what, what will technology be like in the future? We're moving into an, into an era where AI seems to be the sort of big new worry. We've had a lot of mechanization, a lot of jobs have changed due to mechanization, robotics and things like that. And that's when machines were kind of doing the heavy lifting. They were doing very easy sort of tasks to explain that you could follow using a flowchart. Now we're talking about AI, artificial intelligence. I'm not too worried about that yet because I've tried to use Siri on my phone. <laughs> so I have no fear about artificial intelligence taking my job. Siri can't even tell me the weather. <laughs> so that, obviously this is a concern in the future, AI with driverless cars, things like that. There's loads of kind of, we don't know how this is going to go. And you probably know this fellow, um, Yanis Varoufakis, the Greek, ex-Greek finance minister, economist. Make a very interesting point here. Will we move towards that situation where the machines work for us? Or are we going to go into the situation where we work for the machines? I guess for Carlos here, it's very much the latter. Yeah. You see how he jumped to his phone there, jumped to his machine's demands? <laughs> so which future are we going to have? Again, it's a bit exaggerated. Is it going to be the Matrix at one end, or is it going to be you know, something like Star Trek at the other, where the machines are serving us? It's a bit exaggerated, but it gives us this idea. So let's, let's draw this up into a Matrix, because like Lee, I like drawing things into matrix, Matrixes. This is actually used, Matrixes, Matrices. This is actually using the scenarios tool. Does anybody know or use the scenario tool in the past? I think yeah, a few people have used it. It was developed by Shell in the 70s to look at a post-oil world. It's a very, very useful tool to thinking about different possible futures. So what we've done here is a technology on the left, AI restricts us, so that's the kind of baddies, the matrix, or AI enables us on the right. Top culture, open, collaborative, all that lovely stuff. The bottom is the more closed and controlled culture. So this gives us four possible scenarios. Which do you think is most likely? Well, all, all of them, I think, but differently. What kind of jobs might sit down here in this sort of closed and restricted space? Any ideas? This is kind of your assembly line. You know, where you have to clock in and clock out. You have got the same job every day. Well, the rules are very strong. You can't work from home, you can't, you know, there's no variation, there's no innovation, there's no creativity. You just repeat the same job day in, day out, and do it reliably. And the technology, you're serving the machine. So that's that kind of, some sales jobs might be a little bit like that as well. But it's that kind of clock in, clock out, you're controlled, no space for creativity. So there's quite a lot of manufacturing jobs in that space. 
In this space, we might think about something like a call center, the bottom right. So again, you've got rules, clock in, clock out, quite strict. There's not a lot of room for creativity or that kind of thing. But technology is enabling you. You can probably do call center work from home. You've got IT really helping you, giving you the answers. A lot of this gets offshored, places like India, because the technology enables us to do it. So you might get jobs like that you think about over here. Top left, very technology driven. The person's the sort of slave to technology to some extent, but they've got a lot of freedom to collaborate in that. So this is kind of your gig economy. You know, your Silicon Valley IT people and things like that. Huge amount of freedom to decide their own lives. They've got that cultural freedom. But technology, they're very, very sort of driven by the technological needs. So top right, that's a kind of utopian thing. That's where we've got the freedom to be all creative and lovely and do all of that, and technology is enabling us. So what's the future organization going to look like? That's the next question. Well, which, which part of this is, are we going to be? Well, World Economic Forum, somebody quoted them yesterday, World Economic Forum. How about you? Is that you again? Yeah. World Economic Forum quote uh, yesterday. They're saying that actually jobs in the future will, of course, be more machine-powered and data-driven, but they will also likely require human skills in areas such as problem-solving, communication, listening, interpretation. That's all that top-right space. Quadrant four, as I think of it. So in other words, what they're saying is AI technology is creeping into all the other spaces, but it's not getting into that space yet anyway. And studies have shown, by McKinsey and people like that, studies have shown that although a lot of jobs are being lost in quadrants, the other quadrants, one, two, and three, jobs are growing in quadrant four. You know this guy, I imagine? Yuval Noah Harari wrote that book, Sapiens, which I imagine everybody's read. One person's read. Two, three, four. Okay. Future of Humanity, that one, he wrote the note, that, um, he says this in his book, 21 Rules for the 21st Century. He's saying the same thing. What are skills that are going to people need in the future? Adaptability. The ability to cultivate a range of skills to be essential for workers of the future, to find it necessary to switch. So again, that learning to learn, being adaptable. So we got problem solving, communication, listening, interpretation, learning to learn, knowing how to do all of that. These are the skills people are going to need in that top right-hand quadrant to succeed. And these aren't easy things to do. These aren't natural things that we do. Some of them are, but none of us are good at all of this. So for an L&D department in the future, this is going to be the core of the company. This is going to be offshored. This is going to be outsourced. This is going to be brought in as and when it's needed by some sort of contractual relationship. The core of the organization is going to be there, top right. That's the core. That's where the people will be. What do they need? They need this stuff. They need this stuff. So I said I was going to give you six things. I gave you three already. Does anybody remember what they are? Start in the right place. Thank you. Do really good business partnering and change management. Treat L&D like a change management project. Well done. Gosh. So the next three. So these people that can operate in this quad four, people that are good at that space, I call them sophisticated cognitive operators. Now, I know that's not a very good name, but I couldn't think of anything else. But what I mean is using the human brain to be really good at making good decisions, about being really good communicators, being good managers, being... Knowing your own bias, we talked a lot about bias yesterday. A lot of this is not natural. We've all got bias, we all make bad decisions, we're all sort of drawn towards shiny things, we all don't you know, necessarily understand data, we don't all connect brilliantly with other people. All of those skills are vital. 
and the ability to use your brain that skillfully, that sophisticatedly, that's not easy. So we need to invest in giving people those skills. If you can think of a better name than sophisticated cognitive operator, please tell me. I did have, briefly, I did have sophisticated operator of the brain, but it's spelled out S-O-B, and I thought that would be a bit inappropriate. So we need programs to really invest in that. Secondly, recruitment and retention is, a, is an issue. But retention, sorry, recruitment is a really costly thing. And the people that leave organizations are always the ones that are the most motivated, the most energetic, the most knowledge and skills, the ones that can leave, the ones that have got the energy to leave, the ones that have the options. So those are the people you don't want to leave. The people that are more, more likely to stay are the ones that don't have those options. So turnover isn't a good thing. Some turnover might be if you're managing it, and you're managing out the lower performers. But just leaving turnover to itself and hoping for the best is not a good thing, because all your good people will go. And then you just have to buy other good people from other organisations. See, they cost you a load of money. And then you're taking the risk that they might not actually be a good fit to your organisation. They might not be what they seem to be. So we need to keep people, keep the good people. And the way we do that is L&D programmes that are focused on the people. A lot of L&D departments are split up into topic areas. Management training over here, personal development over here, finance training there. What it should be about is investing in the people, the individual, having individual learning programs for people. So we're really investing in them so individuals feel that they can learn and grow in your organization. Because building those quad four people takes time, takes effort. And the last one of my six is evaluation for grown-ups. Now, I'll try and keep my rant about evaluation down to about three hours. Now, who uses Kirkpatrick properly? Who uses it really well? Nobody. No, no one ever has. No one ever has, have they? And the thing, the thing that really gets me about this is training evaluation, what we tend to do is we tend to measure what we can measure, measure the measurable. And what's measurable? Give somebody a sheet after the course and then they tell you what they think of it. They tell you how much they like the facilitator. Do you do that? Yeah? And the facilitator spends the last two hours cracking themselves that they're going to be given bad marks. So they end up being really nice to everybody. So then they won't challenge them when maybe they need challenging. So maybe we're doing some harm here. And because people tend to like other people, you tend to get exaggerated good marks on those level one reaction level sheets. So if you've got a poor performer, you're not getting the data you need. You're actually getting data that says that they're doing okay. So reaction level can actually be quite damaging. And then we do, and we always talk about needing to do evaluation based on the impact in the, in the workplace, don't we? We always talk about that, and that's the only thing the organisation cares about. The organisation does not care how much people enjoyed the facilitation, how much people liked the food. They don't care. And if you go showing them that, you just look like a child going into a boardroom with your pretty picture and expecting a pat on the head. I'm sorry, but it's just, it's just rubbish. You can't expect senior managers to pay attention to that and think this organization needs to be in the center of our business. It's, it's infantilizes the profession. We've got to show them results they care about. And they care about performance improvement. They're not really bothered about anything else that much. But that has to be quite solid data. So where we, and that's the evaluation we need to be doing. And how do you do that? Well, if you set it up as a change management program in the first place, and you've set out the deliverables, you've done a business case, and you've said these deliverables will cost you this much money, the evaluation is done, because did you or did you not achieve those deliverables? 
if you've done if you've done good business partnering, you've already had the conversations with the people saying, well, what is it that happens now? What do you see that makes you makes you feel this is an issue? What would you like to see in an ideal world? So those conversations, when you do them well, they reveal all your measures anyway. So the evaluation is only a problem if you don't do all of that good business partnering and change management stuff up front. So those are my six things that I think we need in L&D in the future. And the thing that I didn't add on to Varoufakis's quote, and this is the brilliant thing about learning and development. The brilliant thing about learning and development is we can make this happen. We can start giving people these skills. We can start doing these programs. We can start investing in the individual. We can start producing really good um, evaluation. We can start setting everything up as a change management project. We don't need to tell anyone. We just do it. They won't notice. They'll just see it as an evolving process. We can do all of this and we can actually influence the organization to go towards that quad four, which is a much more satisfying work environment for people. We can do that. And that's what um, Varoufakis is saying here. It's up to us. Thank you. Does anybody have any questions? We do have some questions. Okay. Um, I think you try to describe um, what the L&D organization will look like in the future. Um, and I would like to hear your opinion on what are the skills of the future for the L&D organization. Well, I think business partnering, number one. We have to get better at business partnering, proper, robust business partnering. So that means we have to be good at assertive communications, challenge, influence. We have to be seen as influential people in our organizations. And you can't be influential by watching a YouTube video about influencing skills. That's not what it is. Building your influence takes a lot of time. So we have to be seen as influential individuals in our organization so that senior managers will listen to us. We have to have good assertive communication so we can challenge, challenge back, push back. And obviously we have to be first-class facilitators, not trainers. Trainers as well, possibly, but we have to be first-class facilitators so that we can ha ensure these discussions that we have with senior teams actually make a difference and they're going deep. Because the first thing you're going to get when you have a facilitated discussion with senior people is you're going to get people very aware of what other people in the room, who else is in the room and what they're saying. And everyone's trying to look clever. No one's trying to look stupid. And it takes really good facilitation to actually get past all of that and actually really dig down and get to some real answers, something that's really deep. So we're going to need first-class facilitation skills as well. And we're going to need to have awareness of change management methodology and start using that in project management to actually more professionally manage our LD interventions. And that means we're going to have to start saying no to some stuff as well, because we're going to be putting everything into, not everything, we're going to be putting a lot of stuff into projects that are focused on performance outcomes as a deliverable. That means some training that we see as low value, we're just going to have to say, sorry, it's not worth it. Go to YouTube if you need to know how to do time management. Thank you, Hervé from Swift, Belgium. Uh, just building on your on your question, actually, so do you think um, we need to source those uh, those uh, skills into the L&D departments? Because you could argue that we have the HRBP, the business partners, typically. Those are the guys who could really facilitate all, all those discussions. So do you see that role, that facilitation role, within the L&D department, or uh, you know, leveraging uh, what what the, the skills you can find on the HRBP side? Thanks, that's a really good question. And I, I love Belgium. It's a brilliant country. It's got like French quality food, but with German portions. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, 
It's, it's a really good question. I think I, I think it is a separate thing. Um, as a sort of quick answer, but they're very closely linked. And if you're working on, if you set out a project, if someone says, for example, we need better line management, and when you've done your analysis, you realize that you know nine out of the 10 problems are related to HR, well, because it's around you know other issues, then obviously you have to partner with HR. There's no way around it. Um, so there's a natural way you have to work closely together. But I do think they are slightly different things. Any other questions? Um, are you already using this model? So you're explaining to us what the future will look like in LD. Are you already implementing? Do you have already experience and examples? That's a great question. As I said, a lot of what, I'm, what I've been talking about today comes from conversations I've had with people from loads of different organizations, and I've pulled together a lot of that thinking. In my own organization, we're doing some of this, but not all of this. We're working especially on the evaluation stuff a lot at the moment. And we do, sorry, just to add to that, we do do business partnering. We've really had to up our business partnering in the last sort of year or two. We've put a lot of effort into trying to turn what we, before we were kind of maybe account managers and perhaps order takers more than we wanted to be. And we've really tried to step into the business partnering role over the past sort of year or two. And it's been a real challenge, but a really fun challenge. And we're certainly not there. It's an ongoing challenge that we have. Yeah, well, I mean, through training, um, but mainly through a lot of collective learning together, so setting up learning sets, learning groups between ourselves, learning from our HR business partners, for example, who already do a similar role, um, doing a lot of research. We're talking to people like the CIPD, which some of you will know from the UK, and talk to the LPI, which is also another UK authority, so trying to get some, you know, what's the sort of industry best practice and trying to learn from that. But it's an ongoing thing, but we're trying to get there. It's in the process. Are there any other questions? How long should I wait? Before it gets really uncomfortable. Uncomfortable silence. I don't mind. I have good silence. Thank you.